0: You are listening to TIP.
1: Here's some math. If somebody starts at the beginning of their career investing hundred bucks a week and gets the kind of returns the market have generated over the past many decades, you know that's sort of six, seven, eight percent. By the time they retire, they'd have one point five million dollars. If that same person said, "Well, I'm just going to put it in the bank; it's safe," and earned what today's interest levels are close enough to zero, they'd have two hundred eight thousand. So, what do you want? Two hundred eight thousand or one point five million?
2: On today's episode, I sit down to chat with Connor O'Brien. Connor is the president and CEO of Beanstalks, which he started alongside Kevin O'Leary, aka Mr. Wonderful. Beanstalks is an app that provides personalized portfolios utilizing low cost ETFs. Connor is also the president and CEO of O'Shares ETF Investments as well. During the episode, I chat with Connor about what it's like working with Kevin O'Leary what crowdfunding is, and how anyone can invest in Connor's own business, what the advantages are of fundraising via crowdfunding, the trends Connor is seeing in the fintech space, what a sensible asset allocation looks like for younger investors, and much, much more. Now, without further delay, let's dive right into this week's episode with Connor O'Brien.
3: You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey,
2: everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Clay Fink. And as I mentioned in the introduction, our guest today is Connor O'Brien. Connor, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. For those in our audience who may not know who you are, could you tell our audience a little bit about your background and Beanstalks, the company you are president and CEO of?
1: Yeah, sure. After spending quite a number of years on Wall Street doing uh, financings and helping companies get deals done, I got into the investment management business. And at some point, I got to meet an then business partner with Kevin O'Leary. And he kept getting asked by so many people, How do I invest my money, et cetera. So we decided let's create a way to make it really easy for the typical investor to get an investment service. And we built Beanstocks, put it in app form, mobile first. And it allows people to basically get started with investing with a fairly small amount of money and a portfolio that's built based on their personal profile. And then we automate everything else for them so they can set it and watch the investment process. Do what they set up. Take 100 bucks a week, for example, from their bank or whatever amount they specify. Put it into their investment portfolio that is designed for them using ETFs, and keeps it super simple.
2: I think all of our listeners want to know: How did you meet Kevin O'Leary? Why did you two end up deciding to launch Stocks together?
1: Phone rang one day years and years ago, before he was as well known as today. In fact, it was before Shark Tank even started. I said, Yeah, I'll talk to him. So I talked to this guy that I didn't know, I didn't watch a lot of television. And he talked to me about what he's done, what he wanted to do, he wanted to get into the business of providing investment services. And we already had the business and platform and team experience to do that. So we just started working together. We created an exchange-traded fund business called OShares ETFs, and we have a set of funds that are listed on the uh, exchanges. And we then got these inbound requests for help with investing that led to Beanstalks.
2: What's it like to work with Mr. Wonderful? Or are there any
1: funny stories you'd like to share about that? It's wonderful.
3: I guess I'll tell you a bit
1: more than that. It's actually really good. Uh, he's a very straightforward guy. You know what Shark Tank? They're all kind of coached by the producer to be a certain style personality that fits a bit who they are, but it's, it's cranked up a little bit and be mean when it's time to be mean and help the, the Shark Tank show appeal to a broad audience. And it really does. I think it's probably created a lot of entrepreneurial spirit across a lot of young Americans and Americans of all age groups. And it's actually become a bit of a global phenomenon as well, because it's just fun watching real people trying to get things done. That's his style on TV. And in real life, he is a bit like that, but very straightforward, quick to first to listen, and then help with decision process. So when it comes to stocks, the whole concept of keeping it very, very simple is all in. And before we designed it, I went and met with CEOs of a variety of other robo-advisors and wealth platforms or systems that were available either through laptop, desktop, mobile. And one of the guys we met in New York City was incredibly generous. He said, hey, I built something. People think it's, it's successful. It's way too complicated. It's too complicated for the clients. It's too complicated for my team to spend a whole bunch of time trying to sort out the complications. And so that guidance is also quite simple, uh, sort of quite helpful. Just a real world experience that aligned well with what Ko we call him, what Ko had to say. And it's really part of the whole. It's called pre built design that went into keeping Bean Socks really simple.
2: When I listen to Kevin, that's one thing I've noticed with his approach. He likes to keep things as simple as possible.
1: I tell you, you know, we built this ETF business. We don't need to own, I, don't. I, Kevin, don't need to own 500 stocks and just own everything in a generic index. So I just kind of want to own the ones that have more of what I want, which is more profitability, dividends, dividend growth, et cetera, et cetera. You don't want a portfolio that's bulletproof as opposed to just anything, everything. That sounds so simple. Who doesn't want to own companies that are more profitable, paying more dividends, growing their dividends, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a little bit of the Ko investment DNA that's in those ETFs, and this is reflected in stocks. Keep it really simple, and life does not have to be complicated. You don't have to swing for the fences with your investing or anything. Maybe sometimes have some fun with it, but swinging for the fences in, in certain things with investing, of course, it's too risky. You know, people work really hard every week to make X dollars. You don't then just go play Las Vegas with your money.
2: Yeah, that's one thing about investing. I think too many people. Take a too complicated approach. And it's good to just have that reminder to simplify and hit on those key concepts of like dollar cost averaging, automate your investments, stick to ETS for at least your base portfolio.
1: Yeah, that's right. A lot of new investors think it's easy or think that they're smarter than everybody else until they learn, oops, it's not easy. And maybe I'm not smarter than everybody else because whatever I did was bought something that was hot, and now it's not, whether it's a stock or it's a crypto or something else. If it's already gone way, way up, be careful. Maybe it's overshot the actual real value of whatever it is. And so I think a lot of people get burned by thinking it's easy, and then they go back to the more consistent way of investing, hopefully, as opposed to not investing. The biggest mistake, perhaps, other than losing all your money, is to never invest. Here's some math. If somebody starts at the beginning of their career investing a hundred bucks a week and gets the kind of returns the market have generated over the past many decades, you know, that's sort of six, seven, eight percent. By the time they retire, they'd have one point five million dollars. If that same person said, Well, I'm just gonna put it in the bank it's safe and earned what today's interest levels are close enough to zero, they'd have two hundred and eight thousand. So what do you want? Two hundred and eight thousand or one point five million? And what's the greater risk? The risk of retiring with 200000 bucks, or risk of retiring with $1.5, it might be less, it might be more. And so getting some of your money growing is really, really important. And for the people that think it's really easy, I would just suggest start small. Have your core portfolio invested in a way that is maybe boring. Think of like rent money and grocery money versus lottery ticket money. You don't put all of your paycheck into lottery tickets thinking you picked the right one. You save enough money to make sure you can pay the rent and buy the food and whatever else are necessities of life. And then if you buy lottery tickets, all right, you have a big chance of losing some money. It might work out for you. When it comes to investing, just guessing at one or two stocks or one or two something or other, very, very risky. So we would just suggest start off building a foundation, a platform, a very steady, solid base of investing. You know, the Kevin O'Leary method, keep it really simple, which means Find a simple way to own a lot of stocks. ETFs, a diversified set of ETFs. Don't just go buy the hottest ETF of yesterday or last year or something. A diversified set of ETFs, getting a lot of diversified stocks. And then do whatever else you want to do on the side, lottery tickets or Vegas or betting on sports or betting on crypto, but build your foundation, build your platform. Don't blow your paycheck on the wild idea.
2: It reminds me of a chart I saw just this week it showed the S&P 500 and its growth, you know, it's grown probably over 10% over the last decade. And it showed a chart of the S&P 500 if it was equally weighted between each company and that that chart was essentially flat. So what that was showing was how just a select few names have driven the majority of the returns of the index over the last decade. That's been the big tech like Apple, Amazon, Facebook. And I think it's important for people to realize Just how few companies will actually beat the market. You know, some people might think it's like half of the companies beat the market and half of them don't, but really it's skewed just towards a few names, is what we've seen over the last decade.
1: Yeah, every decade's different. If you look back a really long time, you'll see that small cap, mid cap stocks did better than large cap stocks and conglomerates. And what's happened recently is that technology and let's call it concentration of market position. Some of these mega caps have done exceptionally well. I think the whole COVID thing has kind of driven a little bit more in their favor. It's also created some innovative companies that went from not very much to pretty significant. I think it was a decade of the mega caps doing better than the rest, but it's not like that every decade. More important than that though is invest in a diversified whether you equal weight or you just go with like market cap weight owning more of the bigger companies. And whether your wealth grows at, over time at six or seven or eight percent. Steady wealth growth is a fantastic benefit generated by the investment markets. If one looks at history, and whether you got seven or six or eight, you end up in a much better place than if you did zero. And people dreaming of getting it perfect are probably going to, for the most part, miss the point. You can't be perfect. It doesn't work. It's better to average it out, get involved, get some growth, try to do better. But worrying about perfect is a bit of a mistake and Diversify. So yeah, you might have some of your money in a market cap weighted ETF. You might have some in an equal ETF. You might have some in a technology ETF. Diversify in so many different ways and learn and grow. And I think if, for young investors who start now, they just gradually learn over time the benefits of investing to learn through their own, own experience. It's not a short term. It's not a lottery ticket outcome that, wow, I just bought the hot something and now I'm a billionaire. It doesn't work that way. For most people, it's a steady, steady growth compounding type of type of situation. That's why we created Beanstalks so that people can actually understand it a bit, as much as they want, and then let the system do it for them. And I want to, before we get to the end of things, I should just mention one thing about Beanstalks people can look at, if, uh, the podcast, or if they're looking at it soon enough, they can go check out this crowdfunding we're doing, learn about the business model we have. They don't have to invest in a crowdfunding, they'll learn about it why we did it the way we did it. They can also go to the App Store and just download the app and play with it. If they like what they see, they can use it and get started with building their own personal portfolio. The crowdfunding I will just mention, I think the address is above me. It's startengine.com. They wouldn't see everything they'd like to see about it there. Maybe later in the chat here, we'll talk a bit about what that crowdfunding is for those aspiring entrepreneurs.
2: Yeah. Let's talk about crowdfunding. For those in our audience not familiar, could you give them a brief overview of what crowdfunding is exactly and how it applies yeah. to these stocks
1: Long ago, years ago, crowdfunding started as just a, a GoFundMe. You know, I, I need some money for whatever personal or family need. And people just donate. And that's very different, but just, it's what most people are used to. Kickstarter and GoFundMe and whatever else. You want to become an athlete and get to the Olympics or whatever it might be, and you need some money. People sympathetic to your your goal, your cause, might just donate. And then what the laws were created as part of the JOBS Act and the SEC created a, a framework that made this legal, functional, regulated, that essentially the equity crowdfunding portals were able to use to basically make it possible for you, for me, for anyone who's an aspiring entrepreneur. To actually create a prospectus that's the fully regulated, uh, part of the fully regulated process, that then becomes available on the crowdfunding portal that is designed specifically for small, early stage growth companies to use to raise capital that permits smaller investors to actually invest in private companies. And whether the company is a new microbrewery or a new drone or some new technology, or fintech investment service like Beanstalks, the people who know the company, like the company, maybe use the product, can actually invest in and own a piece of the company through the crowdfunding. And there are quite a number of them out there, and the one that we're working with is one of the largest in terms of dollars raised, investors participating in it, companies uh, using it, all that kind of thing. So for entrepreneurs, it's kind of interesting, instead of asking mom and dad and friends and family for all of the money you might need to start your business. You can actually get a bit of them, a bit of the help from them through the crowdfunding, but also expand the network to your clients, your email distribution list, your social media presence and so on, and just reach thousands and thousands of people as you're raising capital to build your business. That's what that's all about. It works best, we think, for business to consumer type of initiatives. Because the consumers are the ones who look at what you're offering and say, okay, yeah, I can see using that. That's me. I like it. Maybe I'll use a service and maybe I'll also invest in the business that provides the service. It's a little bit less obvious that it's going to work fantastically well for business to business type of companies. Because the very big businesses that might be the clients, in that case, they're not going to go through crowdfunding. You know, If you're a big company, A, trying to sell your stuff to big company, BCDE, etc., those other big companies aren't going to go look at a crowdfunding and say, hey, maybe I can get us 250 bucks or 500 bucks. That's not what they're going to do. It's really much more of a great platform, great way, we think, for consumer-facing businesses to expand their audience of consumers, get some brand ambassadors who like what you're doing, to invest, spread the word, help you with your marketing, reduce your marketing costs by basically being spokespeople for what us being stocks or you, whoever you would, would like to be in your business, and help you get it growing. So, I think it's really interesting. It's actually very disciplined, by the way. It's not just a wing it. You actually have to create a lot of, you can do a lot of work to create the right documentation. You have to get the accountants to sign off on financial statements. You have legal due diligence reviews and so on. So, there's a real process to it that makes it very, very similar to the kind of stock offering process that people might have
0: seen in the public markets. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash mi. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash mi for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash mi for an extended 30-day free trial. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff. Or, why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn
0: 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com disclosures high-yield-account. All right, back to the show. Why did you choose to
2: go with crowdfunding over alternative ways to raise capital?
1: So we really like the idea of having thousands of people who own a bit of the business to tell us what they think of the product and what they'd like to see coming down the road as upgrades to the product, etc. So we have brand ambassadors, product feedback from those brand ambassadors and fan club. And we think that's a win-win. It's great for them, great for us. It gives us a team of thousands of people that know who we are want to see us succeed and will give us their input to help us succeed
2: so how is the valuation determined in a crowdfunding project
1: it's basically determined through a two step process let's call it so the company that's raising the money does a lot of work to figure out what they think is a reasonable valuation and then has to document it defend it propose it to the crowdfunding platform in this case and have that crowdfunding platform review it and decide yes or no, it's, it is fair or no, go back to the drawing board and redo your work. And so it's a process where the company that is raising the money drives the process. But the ultimate answer of what's acceptable is, is based on real homework, documented work that is also reviewed by the crowdfunding platform, internal due diligence review, people, committee, etc. And then the information is provided online. So the valuation behind Dean Stocks is available online, and people have to go look at it. I'm not allowed to speak in public about a fraction of what is in the prospectus. They have to go look at the whole prospectus. So I uh, encourage people who are interested, even just to learn, go take a look at it, see what we, what we did.
2: Do you have any tips for entrepreneurs or new startups on how they can successfully raise capital to grow their business?
1: Well, if they're interested in crowdfunding, then go look at the YouTube video that we put out there. It's basically me telling people a five, six-minute story of what we did, how we prepared, some lessons learned. We succeeded twice in crowdfunding in raising over a million dollars both times. And a lot of it is preparation. Uh just people can go check out that video. They can go check out our, our information on that startengine.com slash beanstalks uh, page that has... It's one page, but it's probably if you scroll down and count the screens as you're scrolling down, there's probably uh, 30 or 40 screens and then links to more information. And so I would just say a couple of things to summarize it. Preparation first. Second is expect most of the work to get it done is going to be on you, not the crowdfunding platform. They will not run around looking for investors for you. That's not what they do. They create the space within which you can follow the regulated, permitted process. They'll give you tips. They'll be great sources of advice on new ideas, how to accelerate your crowdfunding process, et cetera. And then the other thing I would say is be fair. You want to be fair to investors. It's a way better approach. And that when it comes to valuation, information, et cetera, everything you're doing, You know, it's, it's a long-term process. A startup doesn't all of a sudden, like a lottery ticket, become a whole pile of money in a few days. Building a startup is is a long-term project. And so you want to be able to talk to those investors and someday when you need to do another crowdfunding, make sure that you've done a good job for them in the first or preceding rounds, so you can do more later. I would also suggest to people that at some point in the business progress, you can actually think about talking to other sources of capital, you can talk to venture capital firms, you can talk to established companies that might want to own a piece of the business for commercial reasons that suit what they're doing as well. And be open to that, talk to those different sources of capital. The crowdfunding is a great way to get started. It just is because the crowdfunding platforms are quite helpful. And the structured process really helps fill in a lot of blanks that companies might actually have or entrepreneurs might have in their whole game plan before they go to market. And the crowdfunding process is structured well enough that you as an entrepreneur would quite likely discover and fix whatever gaps you have before you get into the crowdfunding marketing process. Venture capital firms probably won't do that for you. You try to get the meeting and you got these gaps. It's going to be a no-meeting or a short meeting, and you don't necessarily learn as much. So a lot of benefits to the crowdfunding.
2: How do investors typically cash out or get their money back in a crowdfunding type scenario?
1: So it's early days for the crowdfunding process. There are stories out there of successes where the companies grew quickly and sold to corporate buyer or sold the business to some other buyer. You can just imagine, I think one of them I read about was a brewery and it went from nothing to success to being, I think, acquired by a different much bigger brewery. Uh, so that is one example. I think that's maybe even the more typical example. Some go on to basically get recapitalized, I guess, by bigger sources of capital. And it could even be a venture capital firm that says, okay, you know, you've, you've moved your company from zero to X to 5X to 10X, we will put capital into the business, plus we will buy out or offer to buy out the earlier investors. So that does happen in the venture capital world. And then the the longer term thing I haven't seen any examples of is crowdfunding companies getting so big, so quickly that they've already gone public. I have not seen any of that yet. It's of course possible, but companies going from zero to becoming public is often a 10-year type of process. If you just think of Many of the companies that are big public companies today, they probably spent many years as private companies first.
2: As someone who works in the financial services industry, you have a good idea of general things that are happening in today's market. We've seen supply chain issues in the economy, high inflation, sustained low interest rates, and Talks of a new COVID variant spreading in the US. What are your thoughts on the current market conditions and what we might see in 2022?
1: Predictions are easy to make, but hard to be right. So you know, I think on the supply chain disruptions, uh, we're going to just keep on living through the gradual unblocking of the supply chain bottlenecks that have been created all around the world over the past, let's call it two years now. And yeah, it's, it's shut down the microchip manufacturing plants in some locations and the shipping process being bottlenecked in other places and so on. The world used to be running relatively sort of steady day after day, month and year after year, and it just got completely disrupted by COVID. So I think all the different pieces of the supply chain are finding solutions and each step in the supply chain is going to find a solution at a different pace than the next step in the supply chain you know, the milk producer is going to find a solution at a different time than the bread producer and a different time than the trucking company that's moving all that stuff to the grocery store and so on. Simplifying it to just make the point. It's quite likely the supply chain disruption is just going to gradually work its way out. It's not going to be a magic day where it's all done. Gradually work its way out to a new normal over the course of the next, let's call it 12 months, which prediction could get interrupted and busted by COVID-22. Very hard to predict even whether this. Omnicom variant is as big a deal as Delta or not. They don't know yet. Early stuff I've read is eh, probably not as bad, but I don't know. Just read stuff looking for someone better informed to tell me (laughs) what might be happening. So let's talk about interest rates and so on. You basically have the central banks who are running all the different currencies from US dollar and the rest throwing money at the problem. And it's probably a good thing that they did. So the people who couldn't go to work still had money and you know, asset values didn't collapse and you didn't have everybody chasing a limited pool of liquidity. There's a massive amount of liquidity. So nobody really was forced to sell stocks, houses, anything in general terms. Individuals for sure have each their own situation. And so that was probably very, very good at the time. Now the question is, what are the consequences? Do we really have inflation here that's going to be out of control and last for quite a long time? determined? We don't really think so, because the manufacturing capacity that existed before COVID still exists. It didn't disappear, but just some of us become less productive temporarily because people don't go to work when the factory is shut down in whatever the company they're in. And so I think once there's enough vaccine around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world, at all the different places where things are, are, are produced, more or less get back to normal, I think we're going to see Production capacity, normal, and price trends back to normal. There's one thing that could disrupt that. People have learned different work habits in the last two years. You're working today. I'm working today. Some people aren't. You know, there's enough money around that they're like, you know what? I'm going to go for a new lifestyle. I don't need to go back to work. I don't need four fancy cars and so all this stuff. And so they've changed their own work habits. And so the workforce participation level may never come back. And that could be inflationary. So that's the one thing I would say is maybe the most interesting indicator of what kind of a trend we're on towards it's called uh, inflation settling down. Is the workforce, labor force participation rate trending back up to where it was? Or does it look like it's gonna flatten off at a, a new lower level? And that could be inflationary. However, the counterpoint is this technology keeps marching on, getting better, creating efficiencies, and essentially replacing work or doing work that used to be done manually by people. So you roll back to the conversation two, three years, people were panicked, hey, the robot's going to take all my jobs. You know, you're going to have self-driving cars, so you're not going to need people to drive cars or trucks or whatever. And I think it's all going to balance out. And technology is going to basically create efficiencies. People won't need to do some of those things. They could do other things. Inflation likely to, if you look at what the US Fed said most recently, it's likely to last a little bit longer than they had been thinking but I still think they're, they're looking to manage inflation back down to target levels, call it
2: 2%, 3%. What a complex situation we are currently in with the younger generations looking at work much differently than generations of the past. Now, Beanstalks operates in the fintech industry, which is a very fast growing space. What are the biggest trends in fintech in terms of technology adoption and business valuation that you've seen?
1: Fintech in a few buckets. I mean, there's, there's some that are consumer-facing services, like bean stocks. So we're looking to help individuals with their financial goals. Then there are some that don't want to deal with consumers. They just want to deal with other businesses. They might want to deal with us and provide us technology platforms and payment systems and a whole bunch of other things. And then there are some that are just pure technology providers and literally the picks and shovels and so on. And so there are these different categories, and so I would say that that's the first thing to look at. And there are some venture capital firms that don't want to invest in consumer-facing businesses and some that only want to invest in consumer-facing businesses. So that's one thing, just to categorize it that way. Geographically, there's a difference as well. So it's odd, but in Europe, the digital banking fintechs got way ahead of the U.S. And that technology is now in the U.S. And there are some digital-only banks. They don't have a single branch, not a single branch that you could walk into. And they're growing pretty fast. I'm going to tie them all together in a second. You've got wealth. So you got wealth services that allow people to create an account using an app, and then trade stocks, trade crypto, trade whatever. Or like bean stocks, have the system do it for you because you're a busy person. You know, you don't want to be chasing stocks. You've been burned chasing stocks. You've got other stuff to do with your life, whatever the reason. Uh, or you do both. You can have an automated system like Beanstalks, and then you might do some separate trading on your own through whatever app you like. And so, that whole wealth side of things, whether it's self directed trading or automated advisor driven investing like Beanstalks does for people, is a really important category. There's a forecast out there on the web 470 million people globally, a lot of US, but a lot of the rest of the world. It's the expected number of people that will be using a app for investing their money in 2025. So call it four years from now. And the digital only banking that I was talking about is the kind of banks that have no branch. They just have technology and services that you can get through your phones or your desktop. Expected to grow to 50 million accounts by 2025, which is bigger than total of the two biggest banks in the US. So digital only banks with no branches, Will in the aggregate be bigger than the number of accounts that are currently today at the two biggest banks in the u.s the whole point is, is these things are growing and the next thing is payment systems and debit cards you know a lot of people are used to paying for stuff now with whatever they've got on their phone they got a credit card on your phone you got your starbucks app account payment on their phone and a bunch of other things there's more and more payment systems that are going to be just giving people an easier way to use their money and uh, on top of budgeting with all this data that now is going to be consolidated by whichever app the customer chooses to use allows that that app that service that data to be used in a way that helps the customer gives them better information and says hey clay wait a minute this is your eighth starbucks of the day are you sure you need that eight double espresso or whatever it is or other information on what you're doing with your money and your budgeting and might give you tips and help you just stay from drifting out of balance and spending too much. So it's wealth, it's banking, meaning checking, meaning savings, meaning debit cards, credit cards, ultimately borrowing, lending from the bank's point of view, but borrowing for whatever purpose, mortgage, et cetera, to buy a condo, let's say, and the budgeting, and more. I think you're going to see these things gradually bundled because the client is going to find it very convenient to have more of the services in one place. Just think of investing money. If your bank is not connected with your investment accounts, you're going to see time wasted as you manually shift your money from your bank account to your investment account, and then from your investment account to whatever you're going to own. And money doesn't sleep, and the markets don't sleep. And if you basically have your money sitting there not invested when the market's going up, well, guess what? That day is not that day's over. You're not going to get whatever the market did that day. And so, having your money fairly rapidly move to where you want it to be. Is assisted by fintech and assisted by combining a set of services within one fintech platform
0: let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors
3: hey guys the range rover sport leads by example it's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature range rover refinement that you'd expect the third generation range rover sport is the most desirable with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover support at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Today's show is
0: sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, This is a paid endorsement for Public Investing. 5.1% in APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with Public Investing, member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither Public Investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com/disclosures/high-yield-account.
3: lounge access, a free flight to a bucket list destination. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
2: All right, back to the show. Now there are a number of investable asset classes, call it stocks, bonds, and now newer asset classes such as crypto and NFTs. I'm curious, what do you believe is a sensible asset allocation for newer investors?
1: Newer, let's also assume they're younger. Just so I can answer the question with a helpful answer. It's I think equities, we think equities, stocks of companies, should be the foundation of a new younger investors' portfolio. They should be extremely diversified. So they own lots and lots of stocks, but own them through exchange-traded funds because those are low cost, very tax effective. And that really should be the foundation. Fixed income used to be talked about as something really important and you should have your money sort of split evenly or 60% stocks, 40% fixed income. But these days, fixed income is in some ways riskier as a long-term investment, riskier of failing than equities if you buy fixed income for people that aren't sure what it is and you're buying basically the ownership of a loan you're lending your money to a company the company is supposed to pay you interest every six months is typically how they work and at the end of the life of the loan could be two years 10 years 20 years 30 years they're supposed to give you your money back and what happens is people buy and sell these loans or bonds they're often called and sometimes it's the government that issues it and the investors buy it from essentially the government they're currently paying such a low level of income, and they generally speaking don't go up in value because getting your money back is an amount of money that is typically 100% of what the price was on day one. It, that doesn't change. 100% after 10 years is that same 100 cents per dollar it doesn't grow. So if interest rates actually go up, driven by inflation, the value of the bond you bought today goes down because someone's going to say, wait a minute. I can get a higher level of interest on some other bond that just got created today than the one you bought yesterday. So you bought one paying you 1%. I can buy one today paying me 2%. I want that one. I'll pay fair value for that. I'll pay you a lot less for yours. You just lost money. That's the risk with bonds in today's environment. If inflation actually causes interest rates to go up or anything causes interest rates to go up, the value of the bond goes down. Whereas the long-term potential is that you're just going to get your money back. You don't make a growth-related investment return out of it. Whereas on stocks, companies, think of any company that you just use the services of, whether it's for coffee or for internet or anything else. The good companies keep on growing. And if you own a diversified portfolio of stocks, meaning ownership of companies, history has shown that the value of your investment will keep on growing as these companies expand. The economy helps them grow. Population growth helps them grow. And just good business strategy helps them grow. New Starbucks everybody knows of. And who would have thought to go from one or six coffee shops in Seattle to thousands around the world now and as profitable as it is and so on. So good companies can grow if you own lots and lots of them. You don't have to buy them when they're six coffee shops. You can buy them in an ETF when they're already multi-billion dollar successes and cheer them on as they get to be even bigger. That we think is really the reason equities for the next many, many years, much better foundation for your portfolio as a new investor. Tiniest bit in fixed income, who is it, the kind of fixed income investments that pay you a little bit of interest, keep the risk down, but don't own ETFs or fixed income that's very long dated because you get extremely frustrated and then want to sell when that interest rate pops up from 1% to 2% and the value of your investment drops by 4%, 5%, 6%. You say, what the heck, I just gave up five years worth of expected return in a day or a month because of interest rate. There are ETFs you can own that actually have a very portfolio of very short-term investments, and they might only return 1% or so, but they're relatively stable. In bean stocks, we do use some fixed income ETFs of the type I just described for the clients where appropriate based on their personal financial um, information. If they're a lower risk type client or a not as young client, they're likely to have a little bit more of, uh, of the fixed income of the type I described. Then there are the other categories you mentioned, right? So, what else? I mean, we just we can't just not talk about crypto. We do not invest in crypto for clients with bean stocks. Uh, people can do that outside the bean stocks environment. It's a bit too harsh to say crypto is a lottery ticket, but um, the easy money's been made. So, I'll give you another asset class that I think is really interesting for people to consider. And it's not a news to anybody, but it's just own some real estate. Because whether it's a condo or something else, it's just an interesting thing to do with your money. You can actually use it, live in it, and just force yourself to save by paying down your mortgage. It's just automatic. It's going to be a requirement. And just look at the history of real estate. There are bumps in the road. It doesn't always go up, but it's a pretty good way to put some of your money into an asset class that historically has done quite well with bumps in the road. You can expect a disappointing moment or months every five, 10 years as something goes wrong with the real estate market. Post-COVID, everybody who owned a condo in any big city was uh, not very happy with their investment. The value of condos, when COVID hit, the value of condos got crushed, crushed. Same thing for stocks, etc. So nothing's perfect. Back to diversify. On the crypto side of things, one of the latest things I've heard out of O'Leary is, uh, he's kind of gone from no crypto to a little bit of crypto, and now he talks about having that gap. Five, six, seven, whatever percent allocation there. So that's his answer to it. I thought it might be helpful for people to hear. He is not all in crypto. That's for sure. And I would just encourage people to be careful not to be all in on anything investment wise.
2: And one great thing about real estate with the low interest rate environment is that if inflation stays higher than the interest rate on the loan, it ends up being a great inflation hedge since you're short the dollar and long an asset that people will always need.
1: That's right. And you can scare yourself out of it and say, well, geez, real estate's so expensive now. But you go back in history, it's always looked expensive, except for those weird moments of panic when everyone's a seller, nobody's a buyer. But through normal times, it always looks expensive. And then you buy something anyhow, you hold your nose, you write the check, you sign the mortgage, and five years later you say, wow, that was Pretty good thing. It's pretty smart thing I did. That property's now worth whatever fifty percent more than I paid for it, or something. And you're right. You know, you're borrowing the money from the bank. Let's call it. And the value of the, you own one hundred percent of the property, but you only put in let's say twenty percent of the price. So if the property doubles from let's say hundred to two hundred, and you had twenty of your money in, eighty from the bank, your twenty is now worth one hundred and twenty because it's two hundred minus what you've got to pay the bank. So that's pretty good. And if you're doing that instead of paying rent you know you've you've got another win but i'd be careful about flipping real estate if you move very often which you're basically doing is paying the real estate brokers every time you move and there's a broker gets paid for the buyer the broker gets paid for the seller and there's all the moving costs and all that so you see that stuff on tv of flip my house and all that kind of thing might work for some people but nothing's as easy as it looks like it is made to look on tv
2: now, Robert Leonard had an episode with Kevin O'Leary back in September of 2020 here on the Millennial Investing podcast. I wasn't around at the time; I just started a couple months ago. What's new in the world of Beanstalk since then in terms of the technology and the team?
1: We brought out a new platform, so a new app that actually has given us about double the efficiency in terms of people going from downloading it to becoming clients, and so that's got the look that you see behind me on the screen. It's the look that's in the app store. And we are working on, let's call it the, the next platform that's going to maybe look very similar, but in the back end, it's going to be very scalable. And for a business like Beanstalks, today we're relatively small. Getting to scale is of course a very important business goal and we want to reach more people. Of the, of the 100 million Americans. Than actually adults that don't have an investment account, we want to reach as many of them as possible and help them get started building their wealth, kind of following the math I was talking about earlier. So we, we're building a more scalable platform. The second part of how we're doing that is different than where we were a year ago, we have hired in some of the people on the technology side and operational side, people that have experience building digital platforms and digital banking platforms. And a couple of the senior members of that team come from a company that's now publicly traded. I won't mention names, but um, it's now valued into billions of dollars. And they had leadership roles there, and they are now with Beanstalks. So it's a, really a stronger team than it was a year ago and two years ago and so on. So we're really looking forward to what we will be bringing out in the months ahead uh, that um, is going to have their experience built into the, the platform that will be much more scalable designed for the kind of client growth that we think we drive. So those are two really exciting things.
2: The robo advisory aspect is probably my favorite part of BeanStox since you help investors select what they should be invested in. I think that so many people just have no idea what they should invest in, so they just don't invest at all, and that obviously isn't anywhere near an optimal approach when it comes to saving for retirement. So the robo advisory aspect of helping consumers select their investments is really powerful in my opinion.
1: The number one best strategy for somebody who's not investing yet is get started. And whether you end up starting with these 10 ETFs as a diversified portfolio or some other blend of some other 10, getting started is actually still the most important aspect of it. And then if they're investing with bean stocks, they'll have more equities in their portfolio, more stocks through the ETFs than they might get elsewhere are tilted as was part of my answer to the question before there, how should people invest? What should be the biggest part of their portfolio? It really is ETFs that owns stocks of, of good quality companies, midsize, bigger size, mega cap companies. That's really where, where we think uh, we are different as well from an investment point of view. I and mean, another is you know, we, we think stocks that are more growth oriented and technology oriented and so on are better for longer term wealth building than stocks that are in the value bucket the value bucket for people that don't know it includes a lot of bank stocks and oil stocks and things like that. You know, big companies that used to be great that end up not so great, I'll pick on you know, someone like Kmart and Sears and so on because they're gone, end up in value before they go to zero. They're not, all, not all value stocks are going to go to zero.
2: It seems like nowadays, if you're not a technology company, then you won't be in business at some point in the future. And a lot of these value companies are getting disrupted by the tech companies, which is why they're something that is quote unquote less expensive in terms of the price to earnings ratio. At the end of some millennial investing episodes, I like to include a segment called the action plan. Since you're a CEO of a couple different companies, I think you'll be a fantastic guest for this section. So we asked the guests three questions that can create an action plan for listeners to do when they're done with this episode. So the first question is, which habit or principle do you follow in your life that's had a big impact on your success that not enough people do, but should?
1: Somewhat disciplined work ethic with the expectation that not everything is going to be perfect uh, from a career point of view has helped me through career business and business building. And just Always try to do something a little bit better than you did it yesterday. It's not always good enough, you know. Maybe it can be a little bit better. And that's a criticism as well, because people I work with probably think I sometimes just want myself, everybody else to try a little bit harder when maybe for some people it is good enough. I think you know, from a leading the process of building a business, you, you have to constantly try to make things better. And ultimately the goal is to make it better for your clients. And so I think that's a really important thing in, in business building. And I think it also spills over into personal health. Health isn't given to you. You kind of have to earn it. Yeah, there's a bit of a DNA thing you could get a bad lottery ticket, but you got to have some discipline with what you do with your exercise regimen and your food and all that stuff to don't blow it. You basically need to do some exercise almost every day. There's a book I give around to every friend of mine who who turns over a big number, whether they just turned 30 or 40 or 50, or whatever. Give them a book that's titled Younger Next Year. But it's not, it's not the answer to the book that's had the most influence uh, on me from a career point of view. But it's a book that I think a lot of people need to read because it will shake them up and say, holy crap, yeah, I don't actually need to be a little bit unhealthy, a little bit overweight, a little bit this, a little bit that. It's a matter of staying healthy by doing a sufficient amount of exercise and be somewhat careful. You don't have to be a religious freak about what you eat.
2: Huge fan of everything you just said. And you mentioned a little bit about my next question. What has been the most influential book in your life? It doesn't have to be your favorite, just one that's had a big impact on you.
1: So the book that surprised me was a book on the TED Talks. And the thing about it that was really interesting is that the TED Talks is not about the speaker. It's not about the person who's presenting showing how smart they are or anything like that. And so they don't actually accept people who have that style. It's not a sales pitch, etc. They basically designed around this concept that the best speakers are the people who are actually giving the audience something valuable. And it's not really so much about speaking, that the takeaways, the takeaways really related to business. If you want your business to work well, make sure you're giving people something valuable. You know, if you want your team to work well, give them something valuable. So it's sort of shifted my approach to managing teams and business and so on. And think of yourself last because you got so much other stuff you got to take care of before your own successful, It's called bubble up. Take care of your team, take care of your clients and, uh, and do what the TED Talks book talks about. Give people something that is useful, valuable to them. Anyways, that was the book that I found it was really, really interesting. And I think the message in it just broadly applies to friends, family, life, work, et cetera.
2: Final question. Now, when this episode is over, before the listener quickly jumps to the next podcast episode. What is one action they should take to help improve their life, career, business, or investment accounts?
1: I think your personal health is probably the most important thing to, to pay attention to. If you aren't doing it already, you really got to pay attention to that. Don't expect a doctor to you a magic pill that's going to turn you into Superman. It doesn't exist. So uh, I think that's pretty important. And then when it comes to personal wealth, it's is kind of related to health, and if you're stressed out about paying the rent, it's hard to stay unstressed and healthy if you don't have the rent money or Or if you're burning too much cash and you're getting into debt, you know it. But when you take care of the rent money and you make sure you're not building up debt, the next thing is to build up wealth. And it's not a plug for beanstalks, it's a plug for any way you want to build up your wealth, whether it's uh, one sensible way or a different sensible way. But be sensible with it, work too hard to make your money, get it in a steady place that is growing. That's not just a bank account getting zero, and it's probably not 100% in any one asset class or category, but diversified. And I guess the third thing I would say, to take away is try and do something better than you did this year for friends, for family, for whatever it is, for work, wherever you are. Read the Ted Talks book and see if your takeaway is uh, what well mine was, is pretty meaningful.
2: Yeah, that long-term mindset and that compounding effect is so powerful. It doesn't only apply to building your wealth, it also applies to building your health, building your business, building your career, whatever it may be. Now, Connor, thank you so much for taking the time to teach and spread your knowledge to our audience. I really appreciate it. Before we close out the episode, can you share where the audience can go to learn more about yourself, Beanstalks, and the crowdfunding project?
1: Beanstalks.com, B-A-N-S-T-O-X.com is our website and will be for years and years to come. So there's always info there. The crowdfunding that's live now is the time of this uh, conversation is at startengine.com slash b-e-a-n-s-t-o-x. And people can learn a lot about the business, a lot about crowdfunding, whether or not they ever want to invest in the business. It's probably interesting for people to read. And you can learn about me on LinkedIn or Wikipedia. I was a ski racer. That's the first thing you're going to see in Wikipedia. I competed in the Olympics for uh, two different countries. And um, and downhill skiing. And that was tons of fun. I don't do that anymore. My daughter's not doing that. So that's a little bit on the, the personal side. And that's why I was in Alaska skiing, not for the rainy Olympics. I didn't have any Olympics in Alaska ever yet. But um, that's my, I guess, top of the list in terms of sports is big mountain skiing. Love to do that.
2: Incredible story and background. Thanks a lot for sharing your time with us today, Connor.
1: Thank you, Clay. Thanks, everyone.
2: All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time.
3: Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by The Investor's Podcast Network.